Husker Du. In Denmark, Husker Du means do you remember? Around the world, Husker Du is more than a game. It's a memory exerciser that's fun for children and adults alike. A great family game that increases your alertness. Each player tries to find matching pictures by removing two discs. If the pictures match, he keeps the discs. If not, he must replace them. Will she make a match? Not this time. Can he do it? A star. He's seen that before. He remembers and gets another turn. 18 sets of pictures make it virtually impossible to memorize the Husker Du board. Two or more can play as individuals or in teams. No complicated rules. It's easy to play Husker Du, the memory game that's great fun for the whole family. Only $3.99, Husker Du, another fine product from Pick'em. Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. All right, so should we do this pre-show? Yeah. It's been a while since we've done one of these, just the three of us, no audience, no Steve Rydell. Is that right? Our Steve Rydell episode, we didn't have, we didn't have the three of us alone. We did not have the three of us pre-show. We put in Steve from the very beginning. So it's good to see you too, without other people looking over our shoulders. Although, you know, I mean, we, we could call Steve right now and I, I think neither of us, none of us. Would it have a problem with that? No, oh, Steve is like the fourth stooge. Steve is uh, Zeppo Marx. <laughs> Steve the fourth is, Marx uh, brother. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm rattling. I was going to go through a whole list of... Uh, Who's like, the worst stooge? Well, Curly Joe? Curly, Curly Joe. Joe. Curly, Curly Joe, Joe, for sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although I I want to say that, you know, I want I respect Shemp, but honestly... If I turn it on and it's a shemp, I'm like, eh, whatever. I'll there are some good that. shemp episodes. There are some good shemps. And shemp is in other movies, you know, just by himself. Like, he's in some Abbott and Costello movies. He's very funny on his own. But, but wasn't you know, he? Could, he was one of the originals. Curly. He was one of the originals. Mm, the originals are the first three. I thought shemp came first before no. Curly. No. Are you, are you sure? Oh, I'm not oh, yeah, sure. We're very, we're, no, we're sure. I'm going to have to look this up and get back he, to you. Get, look it up I, right now. There's we something in my head up. that's saying that he was briefly with them at the beginning. Then mostly it was, then it was Curly. And then after Curly, Shemp came back. That's no why I say he's the original. Way. Look it up. Look I'm looking it up, up right now. Because if this is the, is, if this is the Uh-oh. truth and this is a fact, yeah. I want to know. I don't want to live a lie any longer. All right. There's no fucking way though. They were part of vaudeville. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mo Howard, joined by Healy's act in 1922, and his brother Shemp Howard. And? And the yeah, but that's not the Three Stooges. Well, 
with Larry Fine. Oh, so it was Mo Shemp and Larry, but also this three. other guy, Bill Haley, or somebody like that, right? And the Comets, Ted Healy, Ted Healy, Ted Healy. So maybe they weren't the Three Stooges, but Shemp was oh, early Pat on. Jim Healy, Ted Healy. Come on, wait, 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 wait. You just said something that I'm surprised to hear. Did you mean to say this? Shemp was Mo's actual brother. I don't. Mo Howard, Shemp Howard, both of them Horowitz original last name i think they are brothers mo and shemp are brothers you can either have mo howard or less howard which now wait a minute (laughs) was curly also a horowitz (sighs) come on you're gonna put me on the spot here i I don't know but you're saying (laughs) curly howard is a successor to shemp howard shemp came first you know when they call somebody a shemp that means he's kind of a fucking schmo a shemp. What are you, a shemp? Like, it, it's, it's, a, it's a way to talk down to somebody. I think a shemp is from the Evil Dead movies, right? That's what Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell would call the, the, sort of the dead. We need a Three Stooges expert on this show at some point. Let's, let's I find thought some. I was a Three Stooges expert. Yeah, but you didn't know that shemp came before Curly, and he's blood. No, nobody did. Everybody knew this. No. I, I no, I don't think you knew this. But I think I think what Scott is thinking, and I think he's right about this, is that when they started to make shorts, when they started, when they put themselves on screen, yes. by that time Curly was in the act. Curly was the original on on screen, and then when Curly now did Curly die? Curly died, right? And I think he just got sick. He got, he got too sick to to do okay. it. So then he was gone, and then by the time Shemp showed up he was pretty tired this is tired shemp i would like to see young shemp so shemp left the act to to act in those movies ben that you were talking about that he's all over the place because after shemp got back with his stooge brothers he wasn't getting outside gigs right i don't think so see the see the way i'm doing this a and e story of shemp howard <laughs> and i'm just doing it by, by what i'm supposing yeah I think it's a new form of storytelling. Now, here's how I feel about history. I thought you were. I, it's I a thought Fox you were, version of history. I thought you were working on tying it back into Gabe doing work on our time. How did we even get started on this tangent here? We are all stooges, and okay. the fourth stooge is Steve. Steve Sleeve, who's not here today. Uh, but really, he's Zeppo Marx. He's, he's the right. fourth Marx brother. But which brings us to who is on the show today, and which also brings me to the wonderful uh, rabbit hole I've been down these last week or so, which is uh, Huskerdoo rabbit hole. So, Gabe, tell us who's on the show today. We're both riding this rabbit hole because I've been down this Huskerdoo rabbit great? hole. Isn't it great? It's pretty. It's pretty awesome. I, I didn't know what it would be like to be a 51, how old am I? 51-year-old dude. Older than Discovering, Shemp. discovering yeah. Husker Du. Not saying I'm Columbus or anything, because I'm surely not. But today's guest, Greg Norton. Who? Greg Norton, I said. That's who. <laughs> <laughs> Bass player aficionado. The Shemp Husker Howard du. of Husker Du. Oh, no. No. Some, somebody in the Three Stooges had a handlebar mustache early on. But no, it says it in here. I'm looking at it. It says it 
on the Three Stooges Wikipedia. I'm on the Wikipedia. It says somebody had a Greg Norton stash. Sir, it didn't happen. I'm looking. Hold on. You're looking. I'm, I'm on the page. Handlebar. Jerry Howard. Shemp was gone. Healy and the two remaining Stooges, Moe and Larry, needed a replacement. So Moe suggested his younger brother, Jerry Howard, repeatedly took one look at Jerry, who had a long chestnut red hair and handlebar mustache. Who knew there was a fifth stooge? Jerry Howard? Yes. That's... <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Greg Norton from Husker Du. He's also in a new band called Ultra Bomb with members of the Mahones and UK Subs. They've just been through touring in May, lighting up a Haley's Comet trail of... A Ted, ha- Ted Haley's comment. Ted, Ted Haley. <laughs> Jerry Howard. Did you uh, see this band, Ultra Bomb, in Chicago? I did not see Ultra Bomb. Mm. I, I was rehearsing that night, or I was working on a cut of the movie, because I know Off was playing that same night as well, and uh, Dimitri from Off was like, hey, we're playing, you got to come see us. And I was like, yeah, but I also got to see Ultra Bomb. But I did see Greg the next night at the uh, the GHB show. GBH Metro. Were you meeting I did Greg see him next <laughs> at the GBH show? Were you meeting Greg for the first time that night? I wasn't. Uh, How did you meet Greg for the first time? Well, thanks for asking, Ben. Well, wait, wait. By the way, I knew Gabe. I don't want to. I don't want to get any further. I know Gabe was going to let this just pass on by. You slipped in a little mention for the first time in quite a while of something called the movie and about working on a cut of the movie. Yes. Inquiring minds want to know what is up with the movie. It's happening. It's happening. The movie is happening. It's just like, you know, I'm, I, I'm working on the sound for it right now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Greg Norton. Take two. Go ahead. How'd you meet? How did I meet Greg? I met what we were playing, uh, this Christmas show at First Avenue a few years ago before we went on tour with Soul Asylum. Hmm. Uh, so our first show with them was this Christmas show that they were doing every year. And Greg's band, he was playing with this band Porcupine. Right. With an old friend of ours, Ian Prince. Uh, and there he was. I was like, hey, you're Greg Norton. and And he was very... Very, very nice to us, and we we shared a few drinks, and he gave me a hat, and yeah, that's how I met Greg. Is that and how you thought it was going to go down, Gabe? Is that how you thought it happened? No, I thought maybe you bonded over when you were touring and didn't cut your mustache, and you said, hey, we're blood brothers. No. <laughs> Forget it. What, what were you going to say? <laughs> I was going to say you forgot that the, to tell the part of that night that you met Greg at first Avenue because you were opening for soul asylum before you went on tour with them, that that was the night that Dave Perner drew a dick on Ryan's drum kit. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. That was a long way to go for that. Well, it wasn't supposed to be that long, but there was a whole fucking thing that happened. It wasn't, but is that, is that a thing? People drawing dicks on. See, I got something out of him. Don't make a joke. Oh, it didn't happen. <laughs> no. So, so you, so we've all been going down yeah. this uh, Husker Du rabbit hole in, in, in preparation for our esteemed guest 
this evening. Am I the only one who was a Husker Du fan back in the no, day? No, no, you're not the only one who was a Husker Du fan. It's just that I have not listened to them in quite a while. Well, that's true for me, too. Uh, and I was thinking that my favorite record was Flip Your Wig. And then mm-hmm. after this week, I kind of, I I don't even know anymore. Like, I, I was kind of like, oh, I think it's New Day Rising. And then, uh, and then I started. Don't discount Candy Apple Grey. I started listening to Candy Apple Grey. I was like, I love this record. Because I used to listen to that a lot uh, when it came out. And I'm listening to it. And, you know, like everybody kind of like, they're like, the Warner Brothers records aren't that good. But I was like, wow, this record, really good. And the songs are really good. They're really going for it on that record, right? And then I started listening to the, like, the really early stuff, you know? And then I was like, oh, this is, this is fucking awesome. And then uh, just before I got on with you guys, I was listening to Zen Arcade. And I was like, oh, no, maybe this is the best record. Gabe. I don't. I, all I had to say is, none of my friends traded tapes with me or gave me a mix of anything with Husker Du on it, and I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of sour on that note because that sucks. I could have been 16 years old and checking out this band for the first time, but it didn't happen. They were they were like in my blind spot for most of my life, where none of my peers turned me on to them. I see yeah. a dude wearing a Husker Du shirt. I'm like, what the hell is this? You never just, listen to Metal Circus or Everything no, Falls Apart? No. And I'm kind of ashamed to say it. Because that Everything no. Falls Apart stuff seemed like it was in your wheelhouse. Well, it just didn't come across my radar. But now that I'm in my 50s and I'm like, okay, how do I want to attack this You know, for the first time? Because I, I don't have any stuff. So I go to Spotify and say, this is who's going to do. Let's go ahead, play. And you just get everything. <laughs> Wait, you said that? Okay, this is Husker Du. Go ahead, play. <laughs> In my mind, I'm thinking, Husker du just, says to just me. let it rain. Let's go. Okay. And uh, I'm like, I'm playing it in the background while I'm working. And these songs just start staying in my memory. I'm like, hold on a second. I know the song. I know the song. And I get to one song. It's like, this song is in my head. I heard it once. Mm. The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill. I'm oh, like, holy yeah. crap. That's the, the jam. Yeah. How did this song get stuck in my head after one listen? That's the sign of a good band, right?
I think they're the perfect band for you being a fifty year, a fifty one year old ex punk. I think it's I think uh, it's probably the most punk rock thing you've done all week. You could say that, but I'm not an ex punk. We got to get that straight. <laughs> okay, well, you sound like Clint Eastwood right now at the end of Dirty Harry. <laughs> Straighten me out. I'm an ex metalhead who who kind of skimmed into the punk realm via the Misfits. Are you still a punk? I never was punk. Never claimed to be punk. Yes, but don't you think like Zen Arcade and uh, New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig are like perfect music for people who and uh, you don't have to have outgrown punk, but you you want to you want to go to the next step. They're down, definitely up my alley because when I listen to them, I'm thinking half of the bands I listen to probably grew up on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's mm-hmm. me ripped it off. Yes. Yeah. I remember I was in college and uh, Candy Apple Grey had come out and uh, I loved it. And I was talking to one of the cooler kids. How come every time Ben starts talking or asking questions, this is what happens. So, so uh, <laughs> I remember I was in college and then Candy Apple Grey came out. And then I was like this. And then I was like, where were you in Minneapolis? You don't say. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Oh, I realize I'm talking into the mic that you're not actually hearing me. Right. <laughs> um, so I'm talking to this kid. I say, oh, Candy Apple Grey, who's could do? And I had just sort of gotten into them because I was no major league punk rocker myself. And this kid was like, eh. I'm over who's could do. It turns right. out they really just want to be like a lo-fi punk rock Beatles. And I hear that phrase and I'm like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? That's the best, that's the best description of a band I could ever hear. Yeah. And Warehouse for a double album that's long past the time that anybody in the band is talking to anybody else in the band is a really good album. There's lots of good songs on Warehouse. Yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of really good albums, uh, are, we, are you getting any feedback on our Lifers Live podcast now that they're actually out to people hearing them who weren't actually at the shows? Um, uh, has there I been any know. blowback from Herb Rosen after my... Oh, yeah. So Herb apparently listened to uh, the episode where, from which we put up last week, the second night in Chicago. He was not there. Well, the story is that you were in the car with him and he blows up on you and calls you a nerd. Right, Ben? Yeah. Is, is that yeah. what happened? He says, yeah. listen, Riser. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not responsible for you tonight. You get the Delilahs with me, and then you're on your own. You're a nerd. So today I get this from Herb. He goes, I just heard Ben's story about driving to Delilahs. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) It's pretty hazy, but it sure sounds like me. Good. I'm glad I didn't. uh, I said, it's a great story. He goes, yeah, pretty spot on. Should we call him? Sure. Now let's give him a call and see what's happening. Is he working tonight? We're going to find out. Even if he is working, he probably doesn't want to be working, so he'll take any excuse he can to pick up the phone. Yes. we got to find a way to get that plugged in. Can you hear it? Hey. What's up, man? So you're on the podcast, and uh, I told Ben that uh, you finally listened to his story. Yeah, Ben, did you get my... I sent you a text. No. 
I did not. He said I got, no, he I did s- not. I saw, I think I saw Herb on Facebook. Because I've sent him a few texts, one like way a long time ago from Shane Hall when I thought he was going to be there. Maybe I'm texting the wrong number. I think you're texting the wrong number. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, well, I don't want to say, you're going to edit this, right? I can, can I say if this is the right number for Ben? Obviously, we're not sure, live. Sure, no, no, we're not live. Yeah, hold on, let me check, hold on. Where the fuck is it? Ben Reiser, better to... Is his number info six? Hold on. Well, that's my work number. That's not that's a his work phone. number. You're calling his work number. How did you get Ben's work number? Somebody must have sent it to me to imported his whole, you know, fucking card or whatever. So I have, I have all, but that's the, the primary number is the one I just said. Are you so making rum cornbread right now? Wait, am I what? Are you making rum cornbread? No, no, I'm sober. I'm sober as a judge. No, oh, well, I can't tell the difference. Well, anyway, here is here is the text. Thank God. That I sent him earlier. I'm glad you called, Scott. Says, dude, yeah. <laughs> says, dude, I just heard your story about our ride to Delilah's. Uh-huh. Sorry about that. It's pretty hazy, but it sure sounds like me. For some reason, I was under the impression that you were you were more fucked up than I was, which is clearly <laughs> not the case because your recollection is far superior to mine. Anyway, can't wait until next time. Love her. Oh, that nice. was my uh, my heart my heartfelt apology. Oh, that, that that's <laughs> it was a hell of a story though. Yeah, it's a good story. It got a, it got a good laugh. Herb, did you know that uh, Curly Howard was not the first stooge? That Chimp was before Curly. Uh, yes, I believe I did know that. Oh, fuck I'm off. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, I gotta go. Well, you know, because I was in, my parents didn't allow me to watch the Three Stooges when I was a kid, so I went, like, to extreme lengths to watch, any, you know, to find the Stooges and watch any Stooges any, anyone, anywhere. I took, uh, took advantage of it, and then when, you know, it was available in other media, I, uh, I got into it, yeah. I was not allowed to watch that, and... <sighs> Have I told you the story when, uh, so Andy Warhol's Frankenstein was on Channel 11. Yeah, you told me this story. I told you this story. Yeah, you went to someone else's house. Yeah. Exactly. So I went to the MyGetters house, who were the fucking hippies that let their kids watch and do anything. Right. But I suffered through a dry American cheese, not a grilled cheese, American cheese on two pieces of dry white bread sandwich so I could watch at six years old. I don't even know what Andy World's friends I was at six years old. I must saw the saw the commercial on channel eleven. Well, did they not have mayonnaise? What's that? Did they not have mayonnaise? Uh no man. <laughs> no mayonnaise. Why you guys right. Well, to to add some context to that, Scott more as context. Was, as Scott was shoving me into Herb's car, he, he kept whispering to me, "You know, you'll if nothing else, you'll have a great story to tell at the end of the night." And then save it for the, the podcast, right? And I was like, "I do not." And I kept th- was thinking to myself, "I don't want a good story for the rest of the night. I just want to go. I want to eat some pizza, which these motherfuckers, without telling me, are about to go to eat without me. But uh, if, if barring that, I just want to go back to the hotel." And so. When Herb said what he said to me in the car and we got to Delilah's, I realized I don't need to hang out with Herb because I already got my good story. Now I can just go home. So it was it was great. I was able so to get out. the story. Yeah, it worked out fine. And you ended up finally getting to Pequod's oh, thanks last for weekend. bringing that up. Yeah. You I went to Pequod's? More t- I, went, I spent some more time in Chicago for work and mm-hmm. uh, 
my friend Scott Lucas met me for some dinner and a movie. We had mm-hmm. a date, I would, I guess you would call sure, it. Sure, sure. And then um, later on, maybe the next night, I I was up till two in the morning doing. I was prepared to take you thing. to a concert. That's but right. I don't want to. I don't want to mention who it was, but oh. I ended up going over there. Oh, you did. Well, I, I I didn't want to. I wasn't going to. I just went over there to pick up Justine. And uh, let me tell you, I didn't understand why you didn't want to go. It was the worst show I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. Yeah. So fucking bad. I don't want to mention who it was, but it yeah, but was legit the worst show I think people, I've ever seen. People with with people with a sense of time will figure it out. Just that fucking LA bullshit to the hilt. Oh man, that guy just deserves to fall in a manhole as quickly as possible. But go ahead. You you had Pequods. I had Pequods. Uh it was delicious. And then but so so I was I went to see a movie at the music box at like nine thirty at night on a Thursday? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thursday night. Thought I'd be no all right. No hard feelings. No uh no, not no hard feelings. <laughs> I didn't even realize what that movie was when you kept saying that. I was like, what, what does he even talk about? And then I was, oh, it's that new J-Law fucking right. thing. Did you see it, actually? I did. And it's no good? It's not. It's, oh. But it's fascinating. I loved uh, You Hurt My Feelings. Although it's the great crowd movie. was horrible. And I will say that the music in that movie is awful. They don't need music in that movie. That fucking, like, it's such a wonderfully low-stakes movie. It doesn't need the low-stakes music. It sounds like interstitial music from, like, a Seinfeld episode or something. It's awful. I don't know what your problem with that is. Terrible. You're talking to the the wrong guys. Not not Seinfeld. Seinfeld. I'm wrong about Seinfeld. I would say Friends, but I know you guys like that. Friends! Garbage. (laughs) Interesting that you bring up Friends. Um, Are you done? <laughs> Interesting that you bring up friends. So my old friend, Zach Waxer. Oh, yeah. Gabe, you remember Zach Waxer, right? The name sounds familiar, but I don't know. Ben, you remember who Zach Waxer was, Zach right? Waxer's the guy who waxed poetic about Dolly Parton's coleslaw. Right. Has he heard right. the podcast? He, he, writes, he writes for Food Talk. So he sent me a new email. And he's no longer... Email. Yes, he's no longer talking about Dolly Parton's coleslaw. Oh, oh, he's talking about Jennifer Aniston's salad. Are we going to get him as a guest or something? What, what's Listen, I don't think this guy exists because, first of all... By the, the way, picture... I just got the text from her. He sent me the whole fucking thing. Again. Oh, did he? Okay. <laughs> the picture of this guy is like a... Is like a it's like a Pixar character. Anyway, Zach Waxer, I, it's not a real person. It can't be. So... Here's what what he has to say about Jennifer Aniston's salad. In the world of viral food trends, one recipe took the internet by storm this year, capturing the hearts of millions. It all started with a social media post claiming that the recipe was Jennifer Aniston's daily salad during her time on the set of Friends. The post quickly gained traction, accumulating millions of views and prompting families across America to give it a try. The result? Instant love and adoration for what soon became known as the Jennifer Aniston salad. I mean, Gabe, can I get an amen? <laughs> he lost me somewhere along the way. Social media has an undeniable influence on our culinary adventures, and this recipe was no exception. As the post spread like wildfire, come on. 
There's no salad recipe that's spreading like wildfire. <laughs> People were drawn to the allure of indulging in the same dish that Jennifer Aniston supposedly enjoyed every day. Wow. There's a twist part, Gabe. Here's, here's the part. Don't get crazy. However... Recently, it was revealed that the claim tying Jennifer Aniston to the salad was not entirely accurate. Aww. Disappointingly, it turned out that the salad was not a staple on the set of Friends, and Jennifer Aniston did not eat it every day. Mm. What right. do you think happened next, Gabe? I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Well, this revelation initially caused some confusion, but it did not dampen the salad's newfound fame. The salad was famous. Are you getting this? By then, it had already captured the attention and taste buds of countless individuals. Countless. But if I had to guess, I would say it was 18. Earning its own Joey reputation Ross. as the, Jennifer's, the, the, the Jennifer Aniston salad. Mm. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Gabe, your thoughts. I can't follow this story. I get, I, I stopped listening. <laughs> He's busy with work. Right, here's one more thing he has to say about this. In the world of viral food trends, authenticity may sometimes be blurred, but the joy and satisfaction derived from trying and sharing a delicious recipe remain unaltered. Mm. He brought it all back home. So regardless of its origin story, let us embrace the popularity of the Jennifer Aniston salad and celebrate the joy it brings to our tables. Who's reading this stuff? I think he's making you it are. up. He's making it up. He's got your number, Scott. He knows exactly what you want to read. Uh, listen, Zach Waxer, if you exist, if you exist, Zach Waxer, come forward, motherfucker. We have some questions for you. He's a content provider. He's a cunt and a provider. <laughs> Hold on a second. Mm. Before we get this thing finished, mm. so, somehow this Before didn't make it. To our guest, you mean? Yes. Yes. We didn't get to the uh, the newfound in interest. Or not, I wouldn't say newfound interest. Okay. You're playing some shows. I read yeah. today that you're you might be part of something that's going on. I'm at the playing Metro. tonight with Cisco Pike tonight. Yes, at, I was going to say that Cisco at, Pike at G-Man. So get your shoes on, put your earbuds on, keep listening to this podcast, and get yourself over to the G-Man and a nunnery. What yes. at what what point in your career was Cisco Pike originally? Active? Oh, I would say we haven't played. We were active maybe about twenty years ago. Well, where was that? 15 local to H 20 album? years ago. What al What album, what local H album is that closest to? Around PJ Souls. What, what's this other question you got, Gabe? I saw something about a Michael Shannon tribute uh, R.E.M. Murmur show at the Metro. That's right. That went on sale today. Today, Friday? Friday. You should probably get your tickets for that. I'm just saying you might want to see that. Sounds if like you're an R.E.M. fan and you're, and if you know anything about us as a band. That's all yes. I want to say. But also, this isn't just a local podcast, Gabe. What about, I saw another thing that you're playing a show with Stone Temple Pilots. Yes. That... We're going to mention that one, Gabe? That was not going to be brought up? Oh, he doesn't care. 
<laughs> okay, but you're gonna come and, and you, you're gonna come and announce. And now, <laughs> bring, bring, bring. Uh, <laughs> Gabe, Gabe's, Gabe's back. Gabe, what happened? Like the shell that he came out of at these shows, he's back in the shell. No, there's no like show. You came out. You know, he's you a live you were, performer. You were, he's he not was, into he the was, studio yes. stuff. He was an entertainer. He was a performer. Now look at him. He's just back there. Going, when is this over? I'm not listening to this shit. No, uh, you're right. I'm not going to listen to it. But <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the fact that we didn't have any real podcast to, to record last week, I, I felt a little empty. <laughs> like something was missing. Yeah, something's missing with you. All right. <laughs> Gabe, That's... do you want to get back out on tour and do some more live shows? I don't know if you can call that a tour, but the, the, the live show podcast was pretty cool. And yes, we should do it again. Oh, you're in. Well, I, I think we should do it too, but you're going to have to get over your fear of flying. I think <laughs> that didn't stop me. I made it. Oh, up. well, I mean, I think it's going to be, things go a lot quicker and cheaper for you. If you get, you get and over that. Not much cheaper. Gabe, have you done anything on punk this week? <laughs> no, I haven't. I can't think of anything on punk. No, you haven't, because you've been listening to Husker Du all week, and that's pretty punk. Hey, everybody, it's Greg Norton. Hi, Greg. Hey, everybody. Thanks man, for having you, me. You are a good-looking man. Ah, thanks. Yep. Got a nice, fresh mohawk rocking for the it's summertime. Great. You're still doing the stash. You're doing right by that fucking stash. <laughs> now, was that a nod to Neil Peart and Rush? I'm, I'm guessing no. Uh, no, and, uh, not to Raleigh fingers either, or, um, you know, right. probably, uh, you know, a little nod to, to Salvador Dali, but yeah. There you go. Obviously. I mean, how, how did it start with the, the mustache? Uh, well, there is a story behind this. So, uh, Husker went out on the road one, one year where, uh, heading towards, uh, California to record everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. and uh, uh we left and i forgot my shave kit at home so i didn't didn't have a razor and so i uh, it just started growing out and was getting long and scraggly and then we were in um la and i was uh, hanging out with des kadena and um he's like yeah man I, I i like i like the stash it's like looking good you know and i'm like yeah kind of bugging me though because it's starting to get long enough now it's like the ends are keep getting in my mouth and he's like oh man you should just twist those up just twist them up on the ends you know and i'm like yeah that's a good idea so i i started uh twisting them up and and then I'll, i'm like yeah i kind of like that like the look and i just stuck with it and that was it that was it so it was yeah. all des Kadena's idea yep i i would all the dezo <laughs> How did that relation start between you and Black Flag and SST and all that stuff? Was that a show in Chicago? Uh, it was actually. Uh, so, Husker uh, came down. We uh, we played our. This was like our our first venture out of Minneapolis, and we played uh, a couple of nights at at uh, I think the last iteration of Oz. I don't know if any of you guys remember the Oz. No, mm -mm. it was, you know, it was uh classic 
Chicago punk dive, like, you know, the toilets didn't work. Um, you know, they, they sold, uh, poppers behind the bar. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, um, a pretty wild scene, but, uh, so we were down there and we had played and the guy that, that ran the Oz was putting on the black flag show, uh, <clears throat> with the effigies and naked ray gun. And, uh, and we had just met those guys um, that weekend when we played. So we were like, yeah, we'll stick around. And because uh, he asked us to play the after party. So we stuck around and went to the show. And then we're at the after party. We play our set. And uh, there wasn't really a, a, a the backstage area was more of like a storage closet. And uh-huh. Grant saw this can of blue paint. And uh, after our set and, you know, and, and so for the encore, Brant went out and he like um, had this can of blue paint and he like uh, dipped some, uh, poured some out, and we played another song. And then this uh, this girl, I want to say her name was Deb, but I can't remember remember if that's right or not. But uh, all of a sudden she comes up and she scoops up some of this blue paint that Grant tossed out on the floor and she goes over and uh, scoops it up with one of his symbols and she was going to start dripping blue paint on um, on his rum kit and so right. Grant went over there to stop her and kind of grabbed her and they slipped and fell in the paint and so her entire backside was now covered in blue paint and she was wearing these leather pants and I think it was uh Chuck and um, and Spot and and I can't remember one of the other Black Flag guys. They thought it was hilarious, and so they they were taking her around, and then they were like uh, bumping her against the up against the wall and putting all these like blue paint butt marks yeah. all over the wall. <laughs> yeah. So that was our our introduction to, to those guys. You know, obviously we knew about the label, and so we had um, and we had also had some prior communication with uh uh joe carducci uh before he he took over running sst for those guys so that was our introduction to him and um we had recorded land speed record after the uh children's crusade and that was the summer so this is like a uh a year later now and um i don't know it was at the end end of the summer so because that would have been march of 81 well, that Children's Crusade tour, like when I, the stuff I've read about it, it appears that you guys just drove out there with no gigs booked and you just stayed in these cities looking for gigs. Is that really the way it went down? Uh, pretty much, you know, so uh, before we went out on that tour, uh, DOA came through town and uh, we played with them and met their manager, Ken Lester. And Ken was, you know, he hooked us up with a lot of, lot of phone numbers. And, uh, you know, we also had played with DOA or not DOA, uh, subhumans. Hmm. And, uh, so with that list of numbers, we, you know, booked some shows. We had a, uh, we started out playing a solid five nights at the Calgarian hotel in Calgary, um, Alberta which was wow. kind of wild because at the, you know, the first couple of nights, the, the bar wanted to fire us because nobody was coming in to see us. So and, that was the plan. Uh, like you, you, you went out there to do that. Yep. And then okay. from there we went to Vancouver and, um, 
you know, we, we played a gig at the uh, Smiling Buddha. Uh, the Subhumans had us uh, open forum over in Victoria on, on Canada Day. Uh, so, you know, we were, you know, after a week in, in Calgary, we probably spent about two weeks in Vancouver. And then another friend of ours that we knew from Minneapolis hooked us up with some people in Seattle. So we went down there and, um, you know, got a couple of gigs, uh, managed to uh, talk our way onto the uh, onto a bill with the Dead Kennedys uh, is the opening, the very opening slot. And uh, that's where we met Jello Biafra. Uh, we had one show booked after that, and that was down in Portland. And Biafra's like, "Yeah, shit, come on down to San Francisco. You can stay at, stay with me. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get you gigs at the Babue. So we went, and we actually ended up. We were probably lived with you know at Biafra's house for five weeks, maybe maybe six weeks. It's crazy. But uh, but while we we're there, you know, we, we played uh, the Mabue Gardens a couple of times. We uh, went up to uh, uh, Sacramento and played a show with DOA up there. We played like on a festival thing that was over in Berkeley. And at the time, I was uh, trying to line up shows in in uh, L.A. And I had Mike Watts phone number. So he and I had just been talking on the phone and he's like, you know, it's crazy down here. It's like the club scene is all fucked up and it's hard to hard to get things booked. Right. So we just kind of gave up on getting down to L.A. We uh, booked a show at O'Banion's in Chicago, drove straight from San Francisco to Chicago, played that show at O'Banion's. And then the next night we were at the 7th Street entry in Minneapolis. And that's when we recorded Land Speed Record. Jesus Christ. So the, the guy that owned Melody Lane also owned a small shop over in St. Paul, though, on McAllister campus called Cheapo. And uh, Grant and I both kind of transferred over to that store. And uh, since it was on, on a college campus, we played a lot more punk rock. And um, one afternoon, Grant has a PA speaker hooked up to the stereo. He's got the speaker out on the sidewalk and he's blasting the Ramones and and uh, here's a, a Bob Mold fresh off the uh, off the bus from Malone, New York, with his Johnny Malone or uh, Johnny Ramone haircut and his brand new black leather jacket and his Chuck Taylor All Stars. And and um, he hears this and he goes over and he starts talking to Grant. He's like, "Oh yeah, I know the Ramones. I, yeah." So uh, that's how Bob and Grant end up meeting. I I didn't meet Bob for a few months uh, until after that. Actually, 
it was going to see the Ramones when the Ramones did a tour opening for Foreigner. And they were at the same thing. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> that was an actual tour? That was an actual tour, yep. The Ramones went out and did a whole tour as uh, direct support to Foreigner. Holy And, uh, you know, and they were out there, you know, with the signs, gaba gaba hey, and you know, the, the crowd <laughs> was, like, hating on them. And, and uh, so we went and had a great time and made fun of everybody else that was there. And then as soon as the Ramones were done, we left. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. Right. Yep. So so you started Husker Du in 79, right? Somewhere around there? Uh, yep. We played our first shows uh, March 30th and 31st of 1979. And those two shows, we were a four-piece, and we were uh, played nothing but cover songs. Foreigner uh, songs. <laughs> uh, we didn't play any Foreigner, but... Okay. Uh, but you had a keyboard uh, we, player, right? We had a keyboard player, and uh, Charlie was the manager at Cheapo, where Grant and I were working. And, um, you know, and he was, he, he had just graduated from McAllister and wanted to be a stockbroker and really loved the cars. Uh, that was like his favorite band. Right. And, um, uh, and it's at like this neighborhood corner corner bar in, in St. Paul called the Randolph Inn. And uh, in this story actually is, you know, kind of amusing. It's like we were just there, uh, Charlie, myself, my girlfriend at the time, uh, another friend, Bill Hawes, we were all just hanging out. Charlie comes back from the bar and says, hey, Grant, we need to put a band together because I just got us a gig. Mm-hmm. And Grant's like, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, I was at the bar getting getting beer and i noticed that they had bands so i asked the bartender and she said why you got a band he said yeah i do and she's like great you're playing here on march 30th and 31st then (laughs) and uh and he had told her that the name of the band was buddy and the returnables so (laughs) sure this is like early february so we you know uh grant's like oh well I, i know this guy at McAllister. he's got a flying v you know, we can get him to play guitar. And uh, Grant was in a in a Beatles cover band at the time, um, where he was playing keyboards. And he and he initially was like, "Well, we can see if Jamie, the bass player from Train, would want to play with us." But the next day, Grant picks Bob up, brings him over to actually my house, where um, Grant's drum kit was set up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the three of us just jammed out a bunch of Ramones tunes. And then uh, Bob and Grant are like, ah, shit, we don't need Jamie. Greg can Greg can play the bass well enough. So at that point, uh, we learned three sets of cover covers and um, got ready for the gig and then uh, played at the Randolph Inn. The three of us were like, wow, I really like playing in this band together and I like playing with you guys, but man, Charlie is like, man, he's like kind of square and we don't really like him that much. So we decided to keep the band going without telling Charlie about it. Uh And so um, uh, we had started rehearsing in the basement of a a different record store where the the owner was like, "Ah, well, if you guys want to clean the basement out, I'll let you rehearse down there for free. And so we started, you know, every night after the shop closed we would start just go down there and fuck around and and uh you know we had you know started writing music right away 
And then Charlie calls up and says, hey, I got us another gig. And it was at the McAllister College uh, for spring break on 420, which was like a big deal at at McAllister because they're, you know, a a very liberal arts college. And uh, so we we headline the student union that night. We play our set and they're like, oh, you guys have like 15 minutes left. You can do whatever you want. So Bob Grant and myself jumped up and we started playing our originals. Uh And Charlie's like, what's going on? I don't, what are you guys playing? I, I don't know this song. And he's like at the keyboard. He's trying to figure it out. And a friend of Grant's by the name of Balls Mikotowski. Uh-huh. Uh, Balls actually was tripping balls that night. And he like reached up and pulled the, the plug out of the back of the Farfisa. So, and that was pretty much where Husker Du was born in earnest, where, you know, we had played our first original original songs as a three-piece but you guys are already writing originals you're well on your way right after that right after those first two shows at the randolph Inn, we started writing so we had um we had sex dolls we had uh mtc um i think probably uncle ron you know we didn't we didn't have a whole lot of stuff at that point but but um you know, after that, I mean, we, you know, Bob just started cranking out tunes and, uh, you know, and Grant was writing a lot of stuff. I was writing stuff and we did that for, you know, the rest of the spring and started early summer. And, uh, you know, and Bob, oh, and uh, we played one show uh, down the road from uh, Northern Lights where we rehearsed at a place called uh christensen's um just another dive bar and uh, that guy let us play there he paid us in a case of beer and we were like great yeah so we went and played that show and you know a handful of our friends showed up and um went back to bob's dorm room drank the beer and then you know broke all the bottles in the hallway just because we're you know drunk punks right (laughs) and uh you know a couple weeks after that bob's like you know, well, we don't really have anything else going on this summer. I think I might go home. I might go back to Malone for the summer until, you know, fall semester. And like literally the next day, Grant's like gets a hold of Bob, gets a hold of me. He's like, oh man, we got, we, we, we got an audition at the Longhorn, uh, which was the punk bar in Minneapolis. And he's like, we got to get down there like right, right away. And so we pile all the gear into uh, Grant's duster, drive to the Longhorn. It's noon uh, on a weekday. They've got like this businessman's brunch set up in their sidebar. And we go in and we start setting up all of our equipment. And then we start playing. And uh, Hartley Frank, the guy that that ran the club, comes out of his office. He's like, what the fuck is going on in here? And and Grant's like, oh, well, we want to play here. And he's like, "That yeah, great. You can play here next Friday night. You can be the first band on the bill, but just shut the fuck up and get out of here. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that, so evidently we passed the audition because right. Grant, oh yeah, we've got this audition. And um, so we played at the Longhorn the, the following week. And then uh, the rest of the summer, actually, we would like be flipping through the, the local arts magazine and, see the longhorn ad and go like oh shit we're on the bill for this night we've got a gig he would just like <laughs> randomly add us to to shows so we played a lot of a lot of shows like that at uh at the longhorn and then you know worked our way up as as our crowds grew and 
and then um you know right. ended up headlining some shows and by that point the uh 7th street entry over at um what was then uncle sam's uh was open and so that was the end of the longhorn era and then the start of the of the uh, first ab 7th street ab. entry era. yeah the rivalry between you and the replacements how real was that is that just bullshit or was that oh real? yeah no there was definitely a, a rivalry so uh you know the replacements they were you know they started out at the longhorn you know about the same time that we did and you know tommy was underage so he couldn't like leave the dressing room he had to stay in the dressing room and, and until their set would uh go on and um the guy who was one of the djs at the longhorn also worked at orfolk he was the manager at orfolk and he was one of the three uh principals in uh twin tone records mm. And uh, so Peter fucking loved the replacements, and um, uh, you know, so yeah, there there was a rivalry definitely there between us. But it was it was a good rivalry. It was healthy, you know. And um, each band wanted the other band to be the second best band in town. Right. So speaking of ri rivalry, what about the rivalry? Ri I can't say rivalry. Urgh, what about the rivalry between? bob and grant at this point was that rivalry there yet or what was it later until after like you know uh, uh the rivalry re really didn't start in earnest until um like we signed to warner brothers really okay uh you know but it was one of those things bob was bob easily wrote two to three times as many songs as grant would write and Grant was very prolific as well, yeah. but you know a lot of the, a lot of those Bob songs. You know, it, it was Bob teaching himself how to write songs. You know, it's, he's like, "Hey, here's an idea. Let's do this." And um, a lot of those never made it out of the rehearsal space, uh, or they would get played like maybe once or twice at at a gig at like the Longhorn or the Entry, and then we'd move on to something else. All the way through, um, everything falls apart. And, um, everything was, at, oh, actually, at, actually, I uh, take that back up through metal circus. Mm -hmm. All the songs were always printed as, uh, you know, all songs written by Hooster do. Right. And so we all, you know, cause we were all collaborating on it. Uh, Bob made the decision that for Zen arcade, it was going to individual, uh, songwriter credits. And, um, uh, and at first I, I was just thinking it was Bob being, you know, pissed off at Grant because we had just put out a record for a local band called Man Size Action, granted the artwork and Grant forgot to put any credits on the record. So like, mm -hmm. you know, nothing then for songwriters, nothing saying like who was in the band and stuff like that. So I was uh, just thinking mm -hmm. that that's what that was all about. But then, uh, you know, later on it's like, oh, okay, I see the songwriter uh, mechanical is different than the artist mechanical. Right. And, Publishing. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, that was that, uh, I, you know, I, I was still writing up, um, you know, and, and contributing all the way up through flip your wig. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, we signed to Warner's and Bob, made a statement in a band meeting one day saying basically that, you know, Grant would, would never have more songs on a record that he would. 
And so that's when like, you know, things really started to get testy with that. And like, um, candy apple gray, it's like, I just went in and, and did my, my bass parts. I didn't do any background vocals. I didn't contribute any songwriting. And it's like, you guys fucking figure it out, you know? Right. Um, I, I always tried not to pick sides, but Grant always tried to like loop me in on his side, thinking that like, you know, well, it's you and me against Bob, right. but you know, I, I didn't really want to be in that position. So I tried to avoid it. And then I started writing, writing again for, um, warehouse and you know, the one song that we, we, we did actually go in and record of mine. Then, you know, Bob was like, Oh, I don't think there's a, spot on the album for it so it gets relegated to a (laughs) non-lpb side that was a uk only release to that whole scene and era to sign with a major i mean on top of everything that you're telling us was was the pressure just too fucking crazy uh it wasn't 
too crazy to start with, but you know, what, what happens is like all of the things that you always did yourself and that you are used to doing and you know, you're good at doing, uh, slowly all of those duties get relegated to somebody else. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, we already had been working with Frank Riley when we're on SST, um, for, for booking, booking the band, but we were always self-managed. And, you know, when we signed to Warner's, it's like, well, you guys have to have a manager. So, um, you know, so that's, that's one thing. And then of course the, um, the demand for, for press gets bigger and bigger. Uh, Grant always, you know, took care of all the artwork and things like that. And they were trying to kind of take it over, but you know, he pushed back on that, but it's, uh, you know, you end up on one hand, it's like, oh, well, now I've got more time to do things. But on the other hand, it's like, well, I don't really have time for myself because there's all these other demands for your time uh, with with press and and um, and things like that. So I think that was one of the things that's I think that's where Grant really started to slip and um, kind of go down you know, his, his drug experimentation. Right. Uh, and, you know, and Bob always like really like, you know, embraced the business side of it. So he was actually really good with it. And I was like, oh shit, now I've got, you know, more time to golf. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I went out and I, I um, played a lot of golf when we were out, weren't on the road. And evidently that bothered Bob for some reason that I like to play golf, but whatever. What's your favorite Who's Could Do record? Uh, well, that's always like asking me which one of my kids is my favorite, which, you know, that, yeah. that changes by the minute, you know? So <laughs> okay. good. That's usually uh, not the answer people have. Well, you know, and that's it. It's like, I always looked at each of the records as, and you know, each one, it means something to me, you know, uh, equally right but they're they're snapshots in time it's like this is where we were at that point in our career and um you know so uh they all they all have their moments and they all also then kind of also also have their their not moments where Mm. it's like "Eh, yeah but you know i love them actually uh earlier this year right after spot passed away i i Put on Zen Arcade and listen to the whole thing from the side one through side four, and I hadn't done that in a long time. And it's like, God damn, that's a good record. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fucking great. Thank you. 
I moved to Red Wing, Minnesota in 1983. So when the band broke up, I'm like, you know, an hour outside of Minneapolis and not really, you know, down hanging out and going to a lot of shows. So I got approached by a couple of guys, uh, well, Colin Mansfield and Joe Jones to start Gray Area. So, um, you know, that was fun. It was, and it was completely different than what, you know, we had, I had been doing in Husker, uh, you know, Grant records intolerance for, uh, SST, you know, and Bob, you know, takes what a year off or whatever, and then releases workbook. So, uh, yeah, gray area. I liked playing in gray area. We, we did one ill-fated tour, but we went out on the road in the summertime. And, uh, when we got back from that, our guitar player, um, Colin was like, you know, I, I don't really want to be a guitar player in a band anymore. I just want to like, you know, do stuff on my computer. And mm. Joe and I, the rhythm section, were like, well, it's kind of hard to be a fucking rock band without a guitar player. So that was kind of the the demise of Gray Area. And shortly after that is when I started working in restaurant kitchens and then ended up you know that turned into a 20 plus year career so are, do you think you're done with music by then or are you just this is just the next thing i well yeah it's the next thing i didn't think i was gonna you know um was done with music um actually i went out with a guy named sonny vincent and with his band shotgun rationale and did a canadian tour in like i want to say 91 so uh -huh. Uh, and, and that was a lot of fun. You know, it's like Sonny was, you know, old school New York punk kind of stuff. And uh, Bob Stinson had done a, a stint in the band with uh, with Sonny. Cheetah Chrome had played with um, uh, Mo Tucker has played in Shotgun Rational wow. briefly. So, you know, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and Sonny wanted to uh, take the band to Europe. There's tons of gigs over there. The fans are great. And I'm like, I would love to, but I'm going to need to see like, you know, contracts and shit and guaranteed money because I, you know, have a house that has a mortgage and I just can't like take off to Europe and not know that I'm going to make any money. Right. And he could never produce any of those things. And so then, um, you know, at this point I'm getting more and more deeper into learning how to cook and, uh, moving up, moving up the ranks and, and, some really good kitchens and then end up, you know, uh, getting my own kitchen type of thing. And, and the guy that, that I learned how to cook from my, uh, Lenny Russo, who's, it's a great chef, uh, nominated for, you know, James Beard, best chef Midwest, like numerous times. Uh, every time he's been nominated, he always either loses to somebody from Chicago or somebody mm. from Kansas city, you know, fucking Chicago, but, fucking Chicago. Yeah. Fucking Chicago. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and Lenny was like, well, you know, you've, you've got a natural talent for, for cooking. You've got a great palate. You know, I think, you know, you, you can't just keep, you're going to need something to do when the rock and roll isn't happening. So, um, uh, like I said, it turned into a great career and, but I went a span of 14 years without even picking up a base. Yeah. So, I mean, what made you pick it up again? Well, another great story. So uh, there's a jazz piano trio called the Bad Plus. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave King, the drummer, and Reed Anderson, the bass player, they're from Minnesota. And uh, they had just released the um, a record called These Are the Vistas on Sony. And a customer of mine at my restaurant brought me the CD and said, I really think you should listen to these guys. They're really fucking good. And on that particular release, they do a, an arrangement of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'm like, well, that's kind of crazy. And then uh, uh, they were playing a show at, at uh, a jazz club in Minneapolis called the Dakota and uh, read this article, this interview that they had done uh, right before that. And Dave was talking about how uh, Husker Du actually was a big influence on these guys. And I'm like, wow, this is really, that's pretty cool. I mean, these guys are fucking great jazz musicians. So I go to the Dakota, I see that show, and at the end of the set, uh, end of the night, I see Ethan Iverson, the piano player, and I just went up to him, and I'm, and, um, and I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, it's like, great set, yeah, my name's Greg Norton, it's like, hey, do you know if, like, Dave is around? It's like, I'd sort of like to meet him, and and uh, Ethan had, like, no idea who I was. He he, uh-huh. he grew up in a, in a jazz and classical vacuum. Um which is why they ended up playing Smells Like Teen Spirit because he claimed he had never heard the song before. And Dave and Reed were like, there's no way that you have not heard this song because it's everywhere. And he's like, nope, I haven't heard it. So then they made him learn how to play it and then they recorded it, which right. I think is So anyway, I meet Dave right right after that. And he's like, oh yeah, Dave's over there somewhere, whatever. So I go and I meet Dave and Dave's like, holy shit. And, uh, and like literally one of the first things he says is like, I've got this great idea for a band and you would be the perfect bass player for it. And I'm like, wow, okay, fucking cool, you know? And uh, so that band ends up being the um, Gang Font, mm-hmm. uh, which is the uh, the record that we put out on Thirsty Year. And I think it came out in 2006. So it literally took a couple of years for from Dave first saying like, Hey, we're gonna have this band, and then every time I'd see him, it was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna do this band." And I got to a point, and it's like, "Yeah, sure, we are." Yeah, right. And right. I'll, I'll believe, I'll, I'll, I'll believe that when when it actually happens.
how'd you hook up with Porcupine and my buddy Ian Prince? Uh, Ian, what is, uh, Ian's a, another great fucking drummer. Yeah. So uh, I had met Casey in lacrosse. Uh, the Meat Puppets were were coming through lacrosse. It was the I think the first tour that they did after Chris joined the uh, back in, into the band. Right. But Porcupine opened up for him, and I were, was like, "Oh, these guys are are pretty good. I, I like these guys." And Casey was working at a guitar shop called Dave's Guitars, which is you know one of the better renowned guitar shops in in the U.S. And you know he and I stayed in touch after that, and. Uh, a couple of years later, I've got a improvisational rock band called Con Queso. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, we actually played a couple of shows with Porcupine uh, in lacrosse and, and up in Minneapolis. And uh, you know, I just always liked Casey's voice and, and uh, his songwriting style. And out of the blue, um, he called me up one day and was like, saying like, yeah, so Davey, uh, Davey Reinders, our, our bass player, and uh, he he just can't do the band anymore. It's like right. uh, it, with with his job and 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 things like that. So he's like, yeah. So I had to replace Davey, and I I put this other guy in, and I tell you, it's like he's just it's like Ian and I are just like don't know what to do because the guy has no stage presence. He just kind of freezes up when we play live, and and uh, so we, we were like. Uh, we just didn't know what to do. And then a, another mutual friend that worked with Casey at Dave's was like, well, why don't, why don't you call Norton? Yeah. Get Norton to call. Get the see guy what, with all the stage presence. Yeah, see, see what see what he's doing. So I'm like, hell yeah, I'd love to be at uh, join Porcupine. That would be great. So that's that's how Porcupine, my, my stint in Porcupine started. And man, playing with Ian was a real fucking treat because that yeah. guy is, is an amazing drummer. Go to Con Queso. Now, how does a improvisational rock band, what, do you show up with the bare bones of a couple of songs and then just go off on it? How does that work? <laughs> uh, well, it went more like this. Uh, so, um, the where I had my restaurant at the time was an old J.C. Penny department store downtown Red Wing, and the entire basement was empty because... Um, we, it, the only way we would have been able to have it open to the public, we would have had to like, literally like build like these fire exits leading up to the street and all this stuff. So, right. so we just left it empty. So we have this big, huge basement. Uh, one of my bartenders, uh, a guy named Seth Mooney, he, he was a drummer and I'm like, oh shit, you should like, you know, set, set your drum kit up down to the basement. I'll bring my bass amp over and uh and then another friend baron evenson uh he was good friends with seth so you know the three of us just started to just jamming together really and um it was one of those things where we would play after the restaurant closed we'd go down and and uh, uh we like to joke that the the uh, uh the more scotch we drank and the more pot we smoked the more we sounded like cream <laughs> so now you're doing ultra bomb yeah which ultra is bomb. is super fucking cool and again another crazy fucking origin story so uh a couple of years ago casey decides to kind of you know change 
things up with the band. Uh, How so? I mean, I've, I've heard that, but I don't know what that means. Well, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, I don't know, things just weren't quite working out the way that, that we had anticipated things going or, or um, I don't know, there, there were just, uh, well, they'll just leave it as, as the uh, the PC, like things just didn't work out. Okay. And um, so Casey, um, you know, and so, you know, Ian goes off and he's, he does bird hands with Alan Epley and, and uh, I'm just kind of like sitting around not doing anything. And uh, the, the, the odd thing was, is that all of a sudden, Kate, you know, this is like a, probably a good year or more since the three of us played our last show together mm-hmm. and Casey books, you know, uh, I see it's like, Oh, porcupine's got a show. And, um, and so Casey plays a show as porcupine with two other people that aren't Greg or Ian. Oh. And people were like going like, what the fuck's going on? Where's, where's Ian? Where's Greg, you know? And, uh, so then this other guy puts up a post on Facebook talking about like, you know, it's like, doesn't really matter who's in the band. It's Casey's band. And he's like, I'm in the band now and blah, blah, blah. It's this, this big long thing. And it was like, okay, well, uh, you know, Casey, Casey had plenty of time to say something to the general public about what he wanted to do. And, and he just chose not to, instead he shows up with two other guys and plays, plays the thing which then led to a bunch of confusion and then this guy puts up this post and my only comment on it was well that clears that up yeah <laughs> and uh and casey got all pissed off at me and like you know um <laughs> blocked me on facebook which i thought was funny and uh, <laughs> but right after that happened finney mcconnell saw that that whole thing on facebook and he's like oh well you don't have a band now you should start a band with me and uh, and I'm like, uh, okay. Well, what are you thinking? He's like, well, I know, uh, I know the best punk drummer in the world. Is, uh, we're old old mates. Jamie Oliver he plays in the UK subs. And I'm like, right. Oh, well, that sounds kind of cool. But like, he lives in London. You live in Toronto. I live in Red Wing. And, and he's like, oh, well, you know, we just get together every once in a while. We can just we'll just do it for a laugh. We'll play some Husker covers. We'll play some Mahones. We'll play some UK subs. We'll just you know play a few times a year we'll just do festivals and it's like okay sure why not i'm in let's do it and so we picked the name ultra bomb um a friend of jamie's like came up with that he's like yeah i really like this name ultra bomb and then i had that photo of my daughter coco uh where a friend put the the atomic explosion behind her and i'm like holy shit well we could use this as the album cover type of thing. And we're like all laughing, going like, oh, this is great. And, you know, Finney's said, it's like, oh, I talked to uh, the guys at True North Records. They put out the Mahones and my solo stuff. And they they said like, yeah, we'd love to put your record out. So we've got a record deal. And then he's like, oh, I talked to Ute at Mad Touring in, in, um, in Germany. And, and she said she'd book us. So there you go. It's like, uh, we've, we've got an instant band. We've got a label. We've got, uh, we've got an agent. Right, it's and all right it's, there. Yeah. And we're like, Oh, perfect. So, uh, a couple of weeks later, Finney is sends me a message. He's like, Oh, I'm going to be in Berlin. I've got some studio time booked. 
I'm like, you know, I've been writing riffs and, and, uh, he's like, Oh yeah. Jamie's actually in Berlin too. Jamie's hanging out. And I, I was like, you know, if this is going to work, I should probably maybe go to Berlin and meet these guys and make sure like this is actually a thing. Right. So, uh, I booked a flight to Berlin, landed on a Wednesday night. Jamie meets me at, at the airport. Uh, first time I'd ever actually met Jamie face to face. He had bright blue hair that, uh, at, at this point. So we get back into Berlin. He drops me off at, uh, at the hostel, which was close to the studio. And then the next morning, uh, go into the studio. We're setting up and Finney shows up. First time I'd ever actually met Finney face to face. So there's the three of us in a room for the first time ever. And then Finney's like, oh, man, I've, I've got these killer riffs. And so he'd start playing a riff and and uh, I would start putting a bass line to it. And Jamie'd start playing and we'd like hammer out an arrangement and, uh, you know, play it a couple of times. And it's like, OK, yeah, uh, we told Hansi, the, the engineer, it's like, yeah, record this one. And so then we would record. And uh, this sounds usually, a lot like improvising again, Greg. Well, but I mean, this time and, uh, you know, there, there, there was actual like, you know, there was an actual riff. It's like right. with chords okay. and stuff to, to play <laughs> off of. And uh, and as long as Jamie was like happy with the drum take, we moved on to the next one. And then after this also the, sounds familiar, by the way, first yeah. take stuff moving on. Yep, exactly. You didn't happen to record and, uh, and mix this in 85 hours, did you? <laughs> so we so we literally wrote four four songs the first night. We wrote another six the next day. And then uh, uh, it was towards the end of that second day that Hansi, the, the engineer, is like, so you wrote that song just now? And we're like, yeah, we wrote all of the songs just now. It's like the <laughs> first time we've ever been together. It's like we just wrote. 10 songs he's like i can't believe that you guys just wrote these songs and uh so uh jamie had to go drum um uh he was doing a gig with with some german band on saturday so it was just finney and i in the studio and finney's you know doing some uh laying down some rhythm guitar tracks and you know we're cleaning up a couple things and i had all these lyrics uh and so i um we printed them out and I'm cleaning up some bass stuff. And Finney's like looking at my lyrics and I get done and I walk in and he's like, I've got the whole record all figured out. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, these lyrics are perfect. It's like this, this goes with this, 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 this. And so on Sunday, Jamie's back in the studio with us. Finney fucking goes in and sings the entire record in one day. <laughs> and, um, and at the end of the day, we still had some time left and, and, uh, the second night when we're out to dinner, we were talking about maybe like doing like a hidden track bonus single type of thing. And we're like, yeah, we should do a cover song. And we all decided that Sonic Reducer was like the perfect song. So then right. uh, we we banged out Sonic Reducer and I uh, I sang it one take, by the way. And yeah. uh, and that was that.
you guys have done some shows. Uh, yeah, we have done some shows. So after getting the record done and being all excited and uh, recording, we were going to do a, a quick, you know, like five date run in Canada. And then that got canceled because of COVID. And then, uh, then the following spring, we we're going to do, um, uh, some dates in England and my, um, uh, uh, I had a family crisis where my sister came down with like this rare form of leukemia and spent uh, literally spent five weeks in the hospital on on, yeah. on a, like a constant like chemo type thing. And and she's she's great, by the way. She she pulled out of that and she's doing great. All of That's her great. hair is growing back now and everything. Uh, so that was like, you know, cancellation number two. And then uh, we were going to do try to reschedule Canada and. Jamie shows up at the airport after being told that he didn't need a visa to get into Canada. And then he gets there and they're like, oh, well, where's your visa? And he's like, oh, well, they told me I don't need one. And they're like, well, we changed our mind. You need one. So right. so that that gets canceled again. Um, and then we have another run of shows lined up for uh, May of last year. And I get diagnosed with prostate cancer. So oh. I'm like, well. Uh, I hate to break this to you guys, but um, I think I kind of need to take care of this. So, yeah, uh, Jamie and and, and Finney, uh, we had uh, in Minneapolis. There's a place called the Hook and Ladder Theater, and they do a uh, festival every every summer. And they wanted us to headline, so Jamie and Finney flew in, in for that. We played. That was the, the our first official gig uh went great it was you know just sloppy enough to be you know extra special and mm -hmm. and everybody had a blast and four days later i was in the mayo clinic getting my prostate out uh, wow so then you know we, and you're okay from that and i'm okay from that so okay. uh, had the prostate out my they said every, all my margins were clean the cancer was all con still contained to in the prostate um you know, but, you know, I took the rest of the year off to, to recover from that. And uh, then we got the offer from Punk Rock Bowling and oh, yeah. we put a put together a, a, a tour for for May to get us out out to that. And I would say the only lingering thing from my prostate surgery is I discovered that when I'm on stage and I'm jumping up and down, I tend to piss myself a little bit. Oh, <laughs> but, you know. It's punk rock. It's not man. so bad. I, I thought I it was going to be. I that. thought it was going to be something else. Nope. But the nope, pissing, nope. that's Just not so bad. Yeah. I thought it was going to be something else. <laughs> and I and I and I and I went. Oh, just thinking about what it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. that. Around then is when I saw you in Chicago. Uh yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah we had played. Uh, we played Reggie's. Uh, right. The night before that GBH show, uh, of course, we were up against. Um, uh, off, off, off was right. playing at uh, Lincoln Hall. So mm -hmm. it was a big week weekend for punk rock. That was a uh, that was crazy. I remember. Yep. But the best part was hanging out in the metro with you, and then you lean over to me and you go, you know, I haven't been here since the last time I played here with Husker Du, and I got like chills. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I got yeah, chills. Yeah. I got chills when I put on this this Ultra Bomb album, and as a longtime Husker Du fan, I was like, "Holy shit, this sounds like like a long lost, better recorded Husker Du album." It sounds <laughs> fucking fantastic, man. It's yeah, so thanks. great. Yep. 
uh, I love the way it turned out. <clears throat> and it's, yeah, it, you know, I think it's one of those things. I mean, I play, I'm bass the way I play bass. So they're, yeah. you know, you know, somebody's like, oh, all the, all those Husker bass lines. And I'm like, well, they're Greg Norton bass lines, but yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, you know? Um, you know, and, and Finney, Finney is a huge fucking Husker Du fan and, and a Bob Mold fan. And, um, <laughs> So the first song that that he went in to sing was "Time to Burn," mm-hmm. and I had to like go, Finny, Finny, stop trying to fucking sing like Bob Mould. <laughs> just <laughs> just sing like you, you right. know. And he's like, "Oh, sorry, bro, I can't help it." You know, I'm such a huge fan, you know. So, so G- Gabe, you, you got? You, do you even want to try your fucking question that I you do every episode? I think it's an interesting episode? question for Greg because <laughs> of the rivalry. It might be interesting. I got a couple questions. I, I don't have just one, but the the we have a running a question that we ask all the guests. Okay. And it's it's my it's job. A little, and, it's a little unfair for you. A little but, unfair, but hey, but you never know. See how you never know. I have a prediction before, and Ben has a prediction before what the guest is going to say. I'm not going to predict this one. I think it's too too obvious, but <laughs> if you had okay. if you had to pick between two bands to listen to on a deserted island, you can only listen to one of these two bands: Iron Maiden or The Replacements. <laughs> uh, I would I'd go with The Replacements. Of course, of course. Yeah. I can't fault you for that. I can't fault yep. you for that. Oh, you can't fault them. <laughs> no, no. We had we had Tommy Stinson on here. And I kind of made a fool of myself when I when I tried to say something before that. And yeah, but he picked Iron Maiden, right? I don't remember. Did he pick Iron Maiden? <laughs> I don't think you asked him. <laughs> I don't think I asked him, but uh, no, you did, and he he said Iron Maiden. I did. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, Greg, you have like a memory like nobody I've ever heard before. You, you're telling me stories about forty years ago. I'm hearing for the first time here talking about you know the guys from Black Flag and all these other people. I can't remember what I had for lunch today. <laughs> you need to write a book. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Uh, I, I have thought about writing a book. I actually started I started working one probably in the early 90s and didn't get real far with it. Uh, when Michael Azared was doing his interviews for Our Band Could Be Your Life, uh, I had like mentioned it to him. And then uh, he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I can help you with that. And then when, once the interviews were done, he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. He just, you know, put some notes on some paper and send it off to a publisher. Was, that was like his advice. So yeah, he's not going to help the point, competition. I think at that point he had already probably had his deal set up with Bob to help him write, uh, his book. Oh. But I always thought that if I did write a memoir, uh, I'd call it shed a little light. Uh-huh. Nice. nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, just saying that everything that that uh, you read in, in our band could you be your life was not necessarily all accurate. Oh yeah, um, uh, yeah. It always se- it just seemed to me that he wanted to sensationalize a lot, a lot of the bands. It seemed like the only band that he he really didn't take any digs at or or try to get dirt on was the Minutemen, mm-hmm. and that was pro- probably out of reverence of D Boone passing away. So. Right. What especially irked you about your chapter in that book? Uh, well, it just wasn't accurate. You know, it's like we we weren't on meth. Uh, we weren't taking you know all of the all of the the speed that that he said that we were on. 
in uh, when we recorded ZNRK, we were drinking bonus cups, which is something that the uh, the descendants came up with spot where it's like <laughs> three quarters of a cup of Folgers crystal. And then like, you know, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, top that up with sugar and then just hot water out of the out of the water like machine uh-huh. and it up and it's this sludge. And then you'd like slam that down. Ooh. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. The bonus that cup, sounds it, worse it, than speed. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it it seemed like he wanted to sensationalize, like, you know, drug use in the band. It's like, yeah, sure, I've done acid, but not like every single day for like an entire summer, like he put in the book type of thing. Uh, And then, you know, in Bob's book, the Husker chapter was basically just kind of lifted. It was the Michael Azarad version of, of the Husker history. And you know, and Bob even admitted that his memory of that decade was a little blurry. And uh, and there were definitely some, I mean, things that outright just never fucking happened in, in Bob's book that they put in there that it's like, well, that's bullshit. That's it, that is not what happened. That is not how that went down. Uh, you know, and somebody told me later that that. Uh, because Bob had a foggy memory on it, and they would, uh, and they were interviewing people. They'd had would have conflicting stories as to what happened. They decided to go with like you know the one that, like I don't know, sounded better or right. you know whatever. So print the legend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. It it sounds like, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it sounds like out of um, Grant and Bob that Bob was the bigger pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the band well i um grant nope. was grant was was full of mischief and you mm. never really knew what grant was going to do he was he was the uh he was the live wire uh, you know bob was bob was like i said he was very business minded and, and knew what he wanted and knew what he wanted to do and how things you know nothing wrong with that no sure uh you know, over over the years, Bob has definitely mellowed uh, quite a bit. Is he's he seems a lot happier these days, and um, uh, I had also heard from some other people that that Bob was kind of shocked when his book came out about how people were like, "Wow, Bob sounds kind of like a dick," <laughs> and I don't think he was expecting that, and uh, and I think he's he's you know. Um, definitely is not like that anymore or at least fries not so i I wanted to ask you something uh i saw husker do play probably six or seven times over the years and i don't remember ever hearing any of you but especially not bob uh or grant say a word on stage in between songs like no no banter between the three of you and certainly nothing communicated to the audience except for the songs themselves, which is great. Fine. There's bands like that. But then the year after you guys broke up, I saw Bob do a solo acoustic show at Maxwell's. Uh-huh. And the place was packed and we were all like sitting down on the floor because he was sitting down on a chair on the Maxwell stage and just playing an acoustic guitar. And about halfway through, he starts talking to the audience in between songs but what he's mostly saying to us is hey there's kind of a weird vibe in here tonight i thought there'd be some more interaction between me and you guys and and it's kind of you know 
uh, are you guys okay out there? And I'm thinking like, this is a guy who's been on the road for like 10 years. And as far as I know, has never said a word to the crowd. And now he's sort of seems taken aback that, that we're not trying to engage him in between songs and stuff. Did I just miss the talkative Bob mold on stage over the years? Or is that, was that? Uh, no, not, not really. I mean, um, so some some of the really early recordings, like from the Longhorn and some of the early entry shows, you know, there there was a little bit more banter. But, you know, we just especially after once we started touring, it was like we'd write the set list and we just actually didn't want to talk to the audience. And so then we just you know got in, into it. It's like, you know, we're just going to come out. We're just going to play. We're just going to yeah. start playing. And then when we're done, we're going to leave. And, yeah. um, and that, that kind of be, became one of our things, you know, we, uh, we, yeah. yeah, we weren't storytellers, uh, <laughs> except for the music. So, right. Well, I don't know. I watched, uh, the Husker Duke clip on John Rivers today, which I remember seeing when, <laughs> when, it, when it happened, uh-huh. and having Joan Rivers talk about whether or not you guys are selling out was so crazy. Like her trying to have that conversation <laughs> with you guys. And you're just like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, Ian McClellan, McClellan. Yeah. Gandalf. He was on the episode. Yeah. 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 He was, he was, uh, uh, so he actually, when they went to commercial break before we played, uh, he said he was the one that's, you know, looked at the camera and said, and coming up next, who's Gerdu? You know, so it's like, wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. What was he doing back then? Why was he there? Uh, you know, I can't remember because that was before Lord of the Rings and, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure. He's probably doing Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. Why would he be on Joan Rivers? It's so... We got to figure that out. We'll talk about that later or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, Greg. This is, this is great. And, uh, you know... You're great, and thanks for taking the time to <laughs> talk to us. Well, uh, it, it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. Thanks for, for having me on. Um, thanks, Greg. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, you, do you, you, well, you, you don't have anything to send. Do you, do you need anything, nope. Ben, for him to send nope. anything? No. No. Nope. No. You, yep. you're, good, you're good to go then. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, just the usual, like, follow, follow Ultra Bomb on Spotify. Go to our YouTube channel and subscribe blah 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 it's the only smash way smash that like button anymore. yeah <laughs> smash the like button yeah it's like every time you do i'll i'll uh every hundred times you do i'll, I'll earn a penny so yeah yeah an angel will get its wings now america comes 